This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we revisit the two sources comprising this portion of the biblical narrative, analyzing the agendas we find in each. We will attempt to look at the differences between the sources to understand the reign of Solomon and the split of the nation of God's people, ultimately helping us figure out what went wrong. Yeah, because we've got two different sources for this story. And each source has a different take on what went wrong. Two sources, one story. Two sources, one story, one story, two sources. Or, as I'll often just say, two stories. But you understand what I mean. We've got one portion of history. The Saul, David, Solomon, and Kings portion. We reviewed last time. We're leaving that in the dust. We're just going to jump in right where we left off in our last podcast. Jump into a presentation, perhaps. In fact, we will. So you've got a presentation. And if you're in a spot where you can pull it up, go ahead and do that. We're just going to jump into the first slide you see there. And that first slide should be right where we left off, and it should provide just enough review to remind us of what we were talking about. So remember, we had one portion of history. I call it the the United Kingdom uh, of Israel. Um, There was a time where we had one king and one kingdom, Saul, David, Shaul, David, Shlomo. I like that name. It's a good name. I've heard it before, I feel like. It's a personal favorite of mine. But uh, Shaul, David, and Shlomo, and then the rest of the Malachim, or the kings. And uh, same period of history, but we got two different takes. And if you remember, we said, well, you tell me, Brent, what did we say Samuel and Kings was? Written from whose perspective? From Israel's perspective. And did we mean like geography? Did we mean that they were looking from the north to the south when they told the story? No, we're talking about timeline. All right. It is much closer to the events that it happened, which means that as we read it, we're reading agenda-driven headlines, uh, much closer to the events themselves. um, And they have a particular perspective because of where they're standing on the historical timeline. Now, Chronicles, we said, was written from whose perspective? Judah's perspective. Judah's, right? So Judah has a perspective, and that perspective is much later on that timeline. So they stand a few centuries at least removed, and the chronicler is looking back, and now with all of this time and hindsight, this chronicler has his or her own perspective on that same period of history. Now, it's going to be very similar. The period, There's going to be all kinds of, we're going to actually look at a couple passages today that are what I call mere passages. The same story told from Kings and told from Chronicles. It's going to be very, very similar and yet have some really key differences. And that's going to be true throughout this entire record. And so that's what I want to look at today, because I think understanding the agenda that the, the writer or writers of Samuel and Kings has And understanding the agenda that the chronicler has uh, is going to really shed a whole lot of light on the biblical narrative. Now, which one is right, Brent? Is the the King's, Samuel King's author right or is the chronicler right? They both have to be right. All right, right. So so we're not talking about like rejecting one. We believe in the inspiration, the authoritative nature of our scripture. So it's not that one's wrong and one's right. It's that they're both right. They just have two different perspectives. And I think there's something to learn if we understand what history taught God's people. Samuel and Kings is maybe uh, more of the the raw information given to people hearing it for the first time. Sure. Yeah. Whereas Chronicles is, you know, the documentary, like we said, the hey, we've had a few hundred years to reflect on this information. Right. What does it all mean? Right. Absolutely. And so I'm going to jump into some notes before we head to our next slide. We're going to do some 
some learning. I'm going to do some teaching here for just a moment, and then we'll go back to our slides and take a look at what we've got in there. But um, uh, keeping in mind these two biblical sources we have for Davidic and Solomonic history, uh, I want to take a look at how the two sources tell their history and what kinds of conclusions we can draw by noticing their differences. So first, let's do a flyby summary of what's seen in the Samuel Kings account. We're going to start with source A. First source, Samuel Kings. After a seven-chapter biography of Shaul, his selection, his struggle, and his rejection, we are introduced to a shepherd boy named David in the chapters that describe his anointing, his service of Shaul, and the defeat of Goliath. Immediately following this Goliath story, Shaul begins to deal with the jealousy and the ill will he feels towards David. The remainder of 1 Samuel over 10 chapters, uh, excuse me, the remainder of 1 Samuel over 10 chapters will outline the long and arduous pursuit of David by Saul. And the story goes to great lengths to display David's humility, morality, and refusal to do anything that would not kedush Hashem. Remember can you remember, Brent, what Kadush Hashem meant? To hallow the name. To hallow the name. Remember, David, we talked a couple podcasts ago. David was somebody who was committed to Kadush Hashem. He wanted to protect God's name. He wanted to protect God's reputation. And Samuel Kings goes to great lengths to show this. First Samuel ends with Saul hopelessly taking his life. And second Samuel will begin with David mourning the death of his enemy. The first nine chapters of 2 Samuel record how David solidifies his throne in Israel, yet we cannot move past this without making two points. First, number one, everything David does in establishing his throne is completely void of self-indulgence. David's actions will continue to kadush Hashem and will, and, and will even have over three chapters dedicated to David establishing the seat of God in Jerusalem, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to rest in that place, and his subsequent uh, prayers, praise, and celebration. Number two, David's military approach is so counterintuitive that it continues to throw even David's men off their hinges. David will continue to mourn the death of his enemies and slay his own men when they attempt to murder the king's enemies on their own. The story reads as a completely wacky tragedy for those trying to learn how to live in an upside-down kingdom that brings shalom to chaos. And it's totally backwards. So if you think about the uh, tale of two kingdoms, empire and shalom, David most definitely seems to be, and he's, we're told he's a king after God's own heart, he seems to be somebody that understands on some level the narrative and the agenda of shalom, but it's so upside-down that his own men, his own soldiers, his own officials, his own commanders have a hard time tracking what he's up to. So at this point, the story turns to David's defeat of the Ammonites and the famous story of his relationship with Bathsheba. After the story of Bathsheba, I'll say that again. After the story of Bathsheba, David's life will take a turn for the worse. His family becomes a heaping pile of dysfunction. His own children begin, uh, begin raping and killing each other. And Absalom will, ch will chase his father through the kingdoms, echo of Saul, possibly. And David will run from a son who eventually dies at the hands of his leading general, who will pay for that protection with his life. David will count his fighting men, a move that will get him in trouble, and the book of Second Samuel comes to an end. 
The book of 1 Kings begins with the throne of Solomon being established and his many building projects. Queen Sheba visits Solomon in chapter 10, where we are told about Solomon's incredible splendor. Now, while there are some possible hints that things aren't as great as they appear in the preceding chapters, the first indication that the author of Kings gives us in the, is in the middle of chapter 10, where we are told that Sheba's gift, probably a treaty tax of good faith, weighs 666 talents. Uh-oh, that can't be good. It's not a favorite number in, no. in uh, Jewish writing. No, 666, that's not good. A deliberate attempt by the author to tell us that we've reached a turning point in the story. In fact, it's going to be this long list of treaties that gets Solomon in trouble, as each treaty is signed by the marriage of Solomon to a daughter of an opposing king or queen. This very next chapter tells us that Solomon's 700 wives and how they lead him astray to idolatry. It's at this point where Solomon's kingdom falls apart. So if we were to step back, step back and ask what the author is saying about this story, I think we would see a definite point. The Samuel King's agenda is to say that the kingdom falls because of immorality. The definite, undeniable turning point in the David story is his sin with Bathsheba. It's David's immorality that leads to his downfall. In a very similar fashion, it's Solomon's immorality that leads to his downfall and the definitive shift in his story as well. His wives will lead him into idolatry, and from the perspective of the first source, the problem is clear. These men have a problem holding true to God's path. We haven't mentioned trusting the story in a while, but it certainly fits here. So, uh, obviously, if we look at source one, and you said two different perspectives, as they're looking at it, they're reading the headlines, they're looking at history, source one says, you know what the problem is? These leaders of God's people... They, they can't stay true. They can't, they can't trust the story, and they sin. And in their immorality, they lead all of us astray. Now, is that accurate, Brent? Sure. Sure, right? So David, David made a pretty big mistake. Adulterous murder kind of ranks probably high on a list, I would imagine. No doubt. It is a, a not a good idea. 700 wives for Solomon. That's an impressive number, right? Mind-boggling. <laughs> You and I can't even fathom how that works. But nevertheless, um, uh, we definitely have an accurate story here. Sure, yeah, there's immorality. But let's look at Chronicles, because Chronicles does something completely different. However, the story of Chronicles tells a completely different story. It's not because the author is trying to save space. Let's look at the differences between the two sources. So Chronicles isn't like a space saver. It's not like the author's trying to cut out a bunch of stuff. After a lengthy section of genealogies, the chronicler spends his time introducing you to the reign of David. There is no effort spent in trying to put David's morality on display, only his pedigree. Let me say that again. This is in Chronicles. Totally different than Samuel and Kings. In Chronicles, there is no effort spent in trying to put David's morality on display, only his pedigree. There's no discussion about his exclusion of Saul or how he goes about his warfare. Even more surprising is the absolute exclusion of the Bathsheba debacle. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was taught about David, Bathsheba was a pretty big deal in the David story. And it's probably good because it, I, mean, I can imagine why they did that. It makes a pretty good youth group lesson, right? Well, there's kind of two things you know about David. He's a man after God's own heart yes. and the Bathsheba story. Right. That's like, like the, yeah. Yeah. When I was in youth group, you definitely heard the, you know. 
No sexual sin, Bathsheba, that's the defining mark of David's downfall. In Chronicles, if you didn't have Samuel and Kings, if all you had was Chronicles, you would not even know about the Bathsheba story. It's not in there. I was stunned to find that out later on in my education. There's, there's no discussion about his exclusion. Uh, excuse me. The telling of Chronicles is void of a morality parade. For the author of Chronicles, David's kingdom consisted of something other than a high moral ethic, and it fell for a far broader reason than the moral failure of a leader. So now, like you said, after all of this history, as they look back, they go, you know, there were some moral problems, but there was something else going on as well. Likewise, the story of Solomon is completely void of the mention of Solomon's many wives and his subsequent idolatry. What's so striking about this for me, your experience might be different though, but for me, uh, it's that throughout my life, I have been taught about the moral, particularly sexual failures of these two men. Yet another biblically inspired author seems to be trying to convince us not to miss the bigger point. The author of Samuel Kings is not incorrect in the way he tells the story at all. All the observations he makes about the moral struggle are true, and the agenda that drives the story is useful and compelling for the reader to become a particular kind of individual. But remember that the chronicler is trying to write about history with a sense of hindsight and perspective. I feel as though he's trying to tell us that we may miss the forest for the trees if we aren't careful. To put it another way, there is a story behind the story. So there might be some real value, not might be, there is some real value in learning about the morality portion of the story. Like there's, there's value in learning about the story of Bathsheba. There's definitely accuracy in, in source, uh, in source a, as they're trying to explain that there were some moral failures, but now given a whole bunch of time, the chronicler is saying, don't get hung up on that though. Don't stop there because the bigger issue, the story behind the story is the one we really have to see. And that's what the chronicler is trying to teach us. Now, if you went back to your slides, um, the next slide that we had adds a little bit more. You've noticed I've changed uh, on the Israel and Judah portion. I've changed the agenda-driven headlines and documentary perspective to their agendas. So Israel's uh, source A, Samuel and Kings, their agenda seems to be immorality and idolatry. And in Chronicles, from Judah's perspective, with time and history, the agenda seems to be empire and injustice. We haven't quite pulled that apart yet, but that's coming. Tip, so, tipping then, the hand to our listeners. We are. A little, bit. Little, little spoiler alert. Uh-oh. Over on the right, uh, you see we've added some of the notes about Saul. Saul was a donkey herder from Benjamin. David was that shepherd from Judah. And so now we're ready to, uh, before we go to the next slide, learn a little bit about Solomon. So I'll jump over here to my notes again. Now, um, the huge hint that clues us in is not only to notice what the chronicler leaves out of his story, but also what the chronicler adds into the story. There's a huge addition of material about the temple. For the chronicler, the story is, on some level, about the temple of the Lord. It's not a big deal in the Samuel King's record. It's in there. It's not nearly as big of a deal. If you read Chronicles, the whole blasted record seems to be overwhelmed with the story of the temple. 
It's temple, 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 temple. People who work the temple, the temple, 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 chapter after chapter, especially towards the end. So the author arranges the events of David's and Solomon's life to make some big points. In the first story, David expresses his desire to build God a house in 2 Samuel 7. The plea seems almost insignificant and unnoticeable. This part of the story makes no grand splash in the greater picture. Yet in the Chronicles version, it's this request that almost seems to serve as the hinge point of David's story. What did we say the hinge point of David's story was in Samuel and Kings? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. But we said Bathsheba was totally gone in Chronicles. So where's the hinge point in Chronicles? Chronicles is going to make it this desire to build a temple. In 1 Chronicles 17, David asks God to build the temple, and everything in the story seems to change. David will no longer seem to be concerned about Kedush Hashem. Now David seems to be bent on conquest and plans for building the temple and getting the supplies for the temple. Now, uh, and why did David ask to build the temple anyway? Because he felt guilty about the kind of life he was living. If you read through that story, here's the phrase that David that David says. Why should I live in a palace of cedar while my Lord lives in a tent? If you remember, God lived where, Brent? In the tabernacle. Tabernacle, right? It's not fancy. It's probably quite dirty now. It's been wandering in the desert for, you know, a handful of centuries. It's probably collected some dust, probably been in better shape. Here's David living in this immaculate palace, and he's feeling a little uneasy, I think. And so he's like, God, I want to build you. That's not right. I shouldn't live in a house while you live in a tent. So here's how God responds to him. This is my paraphrase. I like my tent. Thank you very much. When did I ever ask you or anyone else for a house? God says, I don't need a big house. I don't like a nice house. I, got, I like my tent. My tent says some things. What does the tent say, Brent? It says I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. Wherever you go. I will go. I will go. You build me a house. I can't go. House is going to be fixed to the ground. I can't go. In fact, that's going to become a big issue when they get conquered by Babylon later in the text. And Ezekiel's going to have to come up with what you're going to do with that. But when he's in a tent, he can go wherever his people goes, uh, let alone the humble dwelling. Uh, God says, I don't, need a, I, need a tent. I don't need a house. David is wrestling with the kind of person he's becoming. He's no longer the poor little shepherd boy living out in the fields with his father's sheep. He's not just a raggedy old kid marching down the hillside with a sling. He's a big, mighty king living in a palace of cedar, and it makes him a little nervous. And he becomes obsessed with the best of intentions, I believe, with remedying the situation by building God a glorious house. I don't think David's trying to, you know, covertly swage his guilt. I think he honestly wants to honor the Lord. But it's all starting to look a little bit more like empire and a little less like shalom. Remember, what story are we talking about here at the temple? Uh, the story of empire. And which, uh, which source? Oh, source is Chronicles. Chronicles, right? Okay. Uh, let's see here where I leave off. Uh, they will get past, uh, this will get passed on this, this, this empire focus is going to get passed on to his son, Solomon, who will take his father's blueprints and exponentially increase the temple's grandeur and Chronicles will waste no time in letting you know exactly where it stands on Solomon. In the very first chapter of second Chronicles, the author makes a point, including this paragraph. Do you have that passage pulled up, Brent? I do. All right. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Q. 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 How do you say that? 
Uh, your guess is as good as mine, so I'm just going to say yeah. The, the royal merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. Now, Brent, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to jump over to Deuteronomy 17. Because if we look at that, you're going to find that the chronicler here is, this is absolutely on purpose. This is 110% intentional. Because as he writes that paragraph, he has Solomon breaking every single law uh, throughout that. I don't know if it's all in the paragraph we quote here, but in that chapter of Chronicles, if you compare first chapter of second Chronicles to Deuteronomy 17, you're going to see Solomon break every single rule that Deuteronomy said about a king. And the chronicler is doing that absolutely without a doubt on purpose. Do you have that passage pulled up? When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and have settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. That not... party's got right. He's yeah. from among your fellow Israelites. All right. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself Uh-oh. or make the people return to Egypt Uh-oh. to get more of them. Uh-oh. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives Uh-oh. or his heart will be led astray. Uh-oh. <laughs> he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Oh, no. This isn't looking good for Solomon. Uh, I mean, the whole story is going to show the greatness and the grandeur of Solomon that comes at the expense of God's kingdom project. Uh, as a first paragraph after, after Solomon's death, uh, we'll have the people of Israel approaching his son. Re- the moment that Solomon dies, the people come to Rehoboam and they beg him to loosen the yoke of Solomon from around their necks because building an empire always comes at a price. I find this so interesting. A uh, great book to read. Going to recommend another Rob Bell book, but hey. If people are bothered by that, they're no longer listening to my podcast. (laughs) But Jesus Wants to Save Christians uh, by Rob Bell did a fantastic job of walking through uh, empire narrative and talking about Solomon, at at least a a large portion of that book. And I just found that so stunning to learn that and to notice that in the scriptures, because in in our American perspective, Solomon's picture does this like, well, those were the glory days. You know, Solomon with all of his wealth and his glory and how he stabilized the kingdom and a Solomon, wonderful economy. Solomon in all his splendor. All of his splendor, making Israel great again. Like, there's another one of my not-so-subtle drops there. Yeah, so we've got, oh, man. And, and we just get this totally backwards. And the biblical author is trying to be like, no, no, this is the problem. Like, what king is everybody wound up about in Jesus's day? Centuries later, uh, which king is the one that holds all the, the glory, Brent? Which one we're trying to restore the kingdom of? David. David. We're not trying to restore the kingdom of Solomon. Solomon screwed this whole story up. Solomon built this massive empire on the backs of his own people and all the foreigners and totally blew it. It was so hard that when Solomon dies, they come to his son and say, hey, could you loosen up a little bit? Because your dad really, really laid it to us. Like, this is this is no bueno, uh, and, and just good to pause and recognize what the story is trying to teach us here, because I don't think we teach this narrative correctly uh, when we preach through Solomon. You see, the story isn't about uh, your morality and obedience. I, sh- I need to rephrase that. The story isn't just about your morality and obedience. It is, um, 
But the story that God is telling in this scripture is inviting us to see the story behind the story. It's actually the story that leads to your immorality, that leads to your disobedience. It's the narrative of empire. And we've seen this, Brent, the whole time. We said this whole story is going to be a narrative of two empires, a uh, uh, narrative of two kingdoms, a tale of two kingdoms, empire and shalom. Uh, I mean, we've seen it over, over, and over again. We've seen it a lot. And God continues to invite us to trust that we're okay and that we don't need more. He invites us to trust the story. He invites us to enter his rest and wait on every word. Doesn't sound like Solomon. Uh, he invites us to sit in the shade and not worry too much about horses or houses made of cedar. Horses made of cedar, that you know. Yeah. That's what the children play with. That's right. That's right. Uh he just doesn't invite us to worry about these things. He invites us to be living water. He invites us to be shelter and shade in the heat of the day, uh, the shadow of a great rock. These are the things that he invites us to do long ago in the desert. And as you've noticed, we've forgotten where we came from. If we remembered our time in the desert, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be where we're at here in the story. But this is a problem. Uh, so one final thought. In case anybody continues to wrestle with whether they agree with my take on the story. I don't know. I think, I think Solomon's a pretty good guy. I'm not sure I like what you're doing with this, Marty. Uh, well, I would invite you to wrestle with two mere passages. So there are two passages. Both of them talk about David counting his fighting men. Both stories talk about it. Uh, King Samuel, actually. It's going to be in 2 Samuel 24. There's a record of David counting his men. And then the chronicler is going to tell the exact same story in 1 Chronicles 21. So we have parallel passages, what I like to call mirror passages, but they're not exact mirrors. There's going to be some differences here. 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. How about you read the section out of 2 Samuel 24, Brent? Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, Joab? Yo, Yoav, whatever. Yeah. Uh, go and take, uh, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord, the king see it. But why does my Lord, the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. Okay, now there's an exact parallel passage to that in First Chronicles 21. Go ahead and read it. There's going to be some key differences. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, Go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many are there. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My lord the king... Are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does the Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Now, if you're just listening to this podcast, those might have even been hard to catch because they sound like incredibly similar paragraphs. In fact, in a large part, they're absolutely verbatim, except for three key differences. My first uh, difference uh, is just more for fun than actual relevance, but interesting in story one, David has Joab go from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was all the way in the north and Beersheba is in the south. Now, where did we say story A was written from? 
from Israel's perspective, the northern kingdom. Exactly. So you'd expect to go from north to south. Now, if we said story uh, source B was written from which perspective? From Judah's perspective. If you go back and look at that mirror passage, it has them going the other way from Beersheba to Dan, which I just love to point that out. But then there's two differences that are relevant and incredibly striking. Uh, first question, is it Satan or the Lord who had David take the census? <laughs> that's a pretty big difference. <laughs> of, it's about as extreme as it can get, really. Yeah. So the first line in Second Samuel, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them. And then in First Chronicles, Satan rose up against Israel, and he and incited David to take a census. So either the Lord's doing the inciting, or Satan is doing the inciting. Secondly, why does the chronicler add a statement to Joab's response? So it's not there in Samuel, but in Chronicles, Joab adds the statement, why should he, referencing the king, David, why should David bring guilt on Israel? Okay. So could it be that from the perspective of the first author, David did something that the Lord was not happy about? Again, making this about David's what? His obedience and morality. Right. Absolutely. That's his agenda. Source A's agenda. So if this is about David's immorality, of course, he's going to do something that the Lord's not happy about. But from the perspective of the chronicler, it was lust after empire that was the issue. So the lie of the serpent, the temptation not to trust the story, it's that that actually leads Israel as a whole nation, not just David as a man into the sin that would lead them into captivity. So is it accurate, Brent, to say that God was angry because David wanted to do something incorrect? Uh, do something incorrect. Right. Would it be correct? Would that be an accurate statement? Oh, yes. Absolutely it would be, right? But is the chronicler also accurate to say, however, there was something much larger, there was a much bigger story behind the story that would cause David to do that in the first place? And it's the fact that Satan's agenda was alive and well in his people, right? Absolutely. And that's why the chronicler would add the statement, why should David bring guilt on Israel? Because the first story isn't about Israel. It's about David. The first story is all about David and his morality. But the chronicler says later, oh, it wasn't about just David. It was about all of us. And what David is doing is going to have huge impacts on all of his people. And so he's going to bring guilt on all of Israel. And that lust for empire is so much... More difficult to see. It's so subtle. It's a subtle trap, yep. But but it's also the foundation for the immoral decisions that he makes. But that's the blessing that hindsight, centuries of looking back on the story, has taught the chronicler. Uh, Both stories true, both stories accurate, but one with more perspective. Is it clear in these passages that David is struggling with an obsession of empire, strength, might, and security? I would say yes. I would also add that the historical world... Uh, In the historical world, a census was almost without exception accompanied with a tax. You don't suppose David is trying to acquire the the resources for an upcoming building project, do you? He seems to be pretty overwhelmed with this desire to have a temple project. Uh, And now he's trying to find ways to get money for the temple, it would seem. Not that building projects are bad. They're not. David's house of cedar is amoral. doesn't matter. It's not immoral, it's not moral, it's not right, it's not wrong. It's just a building. There's nothing right or wrong about whether or not he wants to build a temple. The temple of the Lord is immoral. 
Whether it's a tent or a gold-plated temple doesn't matter to God. There's nothing wrong with church buildings, church budgets, or institutions that have to pay the bills. But there's this horrible temptation to start building empires and forget what it means about Kedush Hashem. And there's the constant voice and persistent invitation to remember your days in a field, shepherding sheep, to remember the shade of a rotom bush in the desert, and to never forget that you were once slaves in Egypt. If you don't remember, you might just become Pharaoh yourself, gathering slaves from every corner of the earth to accomplish your will. And if you want to look that up, you could look at 1 Kings 5.3. 1 Kings 9.15, 1 Kings 9.21, 2 Chronicles 8.8, 8, all these being references to Solomon doing the very thing that Pharaoh did. 1 Kings 5.13. 5.13, yeah. Not 5.3. Excuse me, yes. And if that happened, uh, God might hear the cry of the oppressed and begin the work of rescuing his kids. Only this time, if you're Pharaoh, this is going to be a bad place to be in the story. So hopefully that adds a little bit of uh, insight into our study of Solomon. If you were to close out our presentation there, you'd see we just fill that in. Uh, Solomon ends up being, uh, in our review, we'll talk about a lust for empire. Uh, and then the kings that come after him, after Solomon, uh, after that we're going to see the split because, the as we just talked about, the people come to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and they say, hey, would you loosen the yoke because your dad was kind of a jerk? And Rehoboam listens to his advisors, older, wiser men, and they say, yeah, you probably ought to do that. It's not going to go well if you don't. And then he goes to his buddies, his peers, and he says, what should I do? And they say, man, you should live at large. You should keep going. And so he goes back to the people and he takes his buddies' advice and he says, you think my dad was bad. You haven't seen nothing yet. Uh, my dad scourged you, with, scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions, he says. Uh, my pinky is the size of my father's waist. Um, not, not the right thing to say. It's going to lead to a massive revolt. The northern ten tribes are going to split away from Judah and Benjamin. Uh, Judah and Simeon, should I say. And uh, Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, I believe. We say northern ten tribes. It's a little tricky, but you can do your own Wikipedia search on that, and it would, it would show you how that worked. But those northern tribes break away and make the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern tribes break away and stay the southern kingdom of Judah. And we're going to have this battle between Israel and Judah for the whole rest of this period of history. Most of those kings are going to mistrust the story. Um, they're going to continue to build empire every now and then. I can count on one hand. I can count on one hand the kings from both Israel and Judah. People like Josiah, Esa. There's going to be a handful that are going, Hezekiah, that are going to pull this thing together and go the right direction but almost without exception, they're going to be followed immediately by a son or a predecessor that takes them right back into empire at its worst. And that's going to be, I mean, it's going to be the downward spiral of our story. We're no longer trusting the story. We're no longer partnering with God. At this point, we've bought into the lust of empire. Everything's starting to fall apart as we seek to build our own kingdom. And it's now the anti-story. We're the anti-partner to what God's wanting to do in the world. And that's going to be a problem. He's going to have to do something about that. And that's what's going to happen next. Are we covering the kings in uh, future episodes? 
Or is that more not really the listeners? Not really. Yeah, I'm going to let the listeners do that mainly because I'm not, I'm getting better. I'm not super strong in our discussion groups. Bring any questions you have about the Kings. We'll dig into them. I got a couple stories I want to look at next. Uh, we're going to look at Naaman. We're going to look at Elijah, two of my favorite stories from that period. And then after that, uh, we're going to need to catch some wisdom literature before we go past it. We're going to talk about the Psalms. We're going to talk about the Proverbs. Song of Songs, things that are attributed to David and Shlomo. So we're going to wrap up this period of history with Naaman and Elijah, and then we're going to go to the we're going to turn our attention to the wisdom literature. Sounds good. Perfect. Well, if you live on the Plus, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at eibcb, and you can find more details about the show at baymontdiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.